Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, a royalty consultant helping artists to collect on their value. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hi, I'm Tanya Oliveira. I work for Transparency Entertainment Group. I focus on World X USA neighboring rights on the performer side and rights holder side. Hey, and welcome back to Money in the Air, the podcast brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. Today with me, I have Gina Deacon from Absolute, Tanya Oliveira from Transparency Entertainment Group, and the magnificent George Schwint. Hi, George. Hi, when does he get here? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell the people about your career? I'm here as a performer artist today. I was with a band called Floggy Molly for 20 years that I co-founded, proceeded to tour the world with and sell about uh, over 3 million records, something like that. That's why I'm here. Good. Well, we're really glad that you're here. And just for the audience listening, um, George understands the music business very, very well. Yet he still has questions about neighboring rights. We know that you do too, and you're in really good company. George, ask us a question. Is the neighboring right a derivative right of the recording of that circle P? Yes, it is. Okay. I've performed on uh, live television when I was with Floggy Molly, uh, most of the late night shows and had to sign a union form to temporarily join, well, before SAG, after an AFM all joined together. There was a couple of different forms. Uh, but does that mean I give away my rights, my neighboring rights when I do that? In theory, no, but there is a complication in the sense that anyone that performed on like, like Letterman, for example, and did a live show would have signed one of those forms. What happens is that now you are worldwide with the AFM. So they have a database. And a few years ago, they obviously hit a button of some sort and everyone became worldwide AFM, which created conflicts for most of our clients but the good news is that in the past two years most of the CMOs around the world are ignoring this conflict because they realize the background about it they realize that you know it was maybe a one-time thing you know they played on Letterman once like it's not fair to block all of these royalties so it's not an issue these days which is great but some CMOs just need proof that your AFM mandate is regional and all you need to do is just email the AFM or SAG after it and just say, hey, I'd like you guys to make sure my mandate is regional rather than worldwide. And even if they don't reply, that's okay. Just keep a copy of that email and send it to the CMOs that have an issue with it, which I believe is just PPL and ACTRA these days that have an issue. So if I did that, and I say, okay, just I, I'm defining the territory for AFM, saying, no, this is only going to be for the U.S. How do I then collect a neighboring right, for example, for a show that is broadcast in territories that are uh, signatories to, to, the, to the treaty? How do I, because I can't go through sound exchange if it's a terrestrial broadcast. So from a, the U.S. standpoint, as a U.S. performer, how do you get that money? First, let's just make the distinction that it doesn't count if you played live. It's only if they use the recording. So some CMOs pay, we call it AV. 
So if there's like if they're kind of replaying some say I keep saying Letterman, if they keep replaying a Letterman show that Flavio Molly was performing on, then some European countries will pay you neighbouring rights for terrestrial broadcast of that. And the countries that currently pay for that are Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, and there's a few in Eastern Europe, but I don't have deals with the Eastern European CMOs. Yeah, it's worthwhile making sure you're signed up in those territories. And then they have like a section where you you can upload a big excel of the audiovisual, all the TV shows you've been on, the films that had your soundtrack on. Um, or you can just manually claim. Um, so yeah, I do that at Playwright in Belgium a lot. I would suggest that you join PPL if you're not already a member. Can I just clarify that the repeat of a show is the playing of the recording? Yeah, so it might seem daunting to have all these society options. You don't need to go to them all. My suggestion would be that you join Sound Exchange for your American US claims and then go to PPL in the UK and do the rest of the world excluding America excluding US unless you are very admin efficient and you wish to join various different societies but it's a lot of work and PPL would do that work for you or you would get a representative to do that for you. Do you know where your biggest fan base is? Austria probably based on the okay. number so um, it's worth Austria, looking at germany belgium holland excellent yes yeah, so you should definitely sign up with gvl in germany lsg in austria center in the netherlands and playwright in belgium yeah and also yes gvl pay for audiovisual very well i, I forgot gvl is a big payer out of all of those predominantly so i would focus if you wanted to go directly my suggestion oh. would be start with gvl Thank you. That kind of answered my next question was that I'm in the U.S., but can I sign up for a CMO in other countries for my broadcast work? So the answer is yes. It's just how you do it. Is it, Am I going to go territory by territory? Or I'm going to use, for example, like you said, Gina, the PPL and let them manage the collections, the territories outside of the U.S. And I am signed up for Sound Exchange. That was one of the big reasons that I started digging farther into neighboring rights because I saw the significant impact just these digital streams are having on my monthly income as a featured performer. And it's a big deal, even for a band like Floggy Molly and my other performing rights outside of Floggy Molly, it's, it's made a difference. So that's kind of where I, where I've been, but so I've signed up to sign sound exchange, for example, but my band members haven't. Does that mean that I won't get paid? No, no you, you will still get paid, definitely. So the sound exchange, you need to kind of tell them the split, kind of like songwriting splits in the sense. So if there are four of you, you and there's a column where you would put 25% of the royalties go to you, if there's five of you, 20%. Also, that is up to the bands. Some bands have crazy splits and, you know, so you will still get paid, definitely, a resounding yes. And for the rest of the world. Advise the rest of the band to sign up. Who yes. were you signed to? <laughs> Um, side one dummy records and did they register as the rights holder they registered as the rights holder yes for the recording side not as the feature performers i did it as a feature performer as the band a long time ago and then when i left the band then we had to create our own accounts so it used to go into the general band fund uh, account and then it had to be divided up now the follow-up question is, those rights, can they be negotiated away? So 
your sound exchange rights, somebody else in the band can't say you're not entitled to those rights anymore. It's it stays with you from the time of the recording. Correct. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Question about your contribution on a recording. The society would ask you or your representative for evidence and then we would seek to ensure that you had contributed on a recording and send that evidence back so they won't ever pay anybody or they shouldn't pay anybody that hasn't actually contributed on a recording and sufficient income definitely warrants that evidence to be provided okay and one of the um one of the uh, my, my sound exchange representatives said one of the things that they look at is they just look at the label copy say, oh, you're listed as a band member. Therefore, you are entitled to an equal split. And that's kind of their rule of thumb. Now, if there's an outside agreement or an additional agreement that changes that and says, well, you know, this was the band agreement uh, supersedes whatever how sound exchange view, then that's one thing. But that's how the people at sound exchange told me that they look for it in terms of right. are you a feature performer or are you a non-feature performer that's um, right band members are featured okay should afm featured performers sign up directly with sound exchange or go through the afm so the afm only represents non-featured so session players so it is quite confusing so you will get a featured artist like yourself like steve looker through of toto who is a member of Sound Exchange for all the featured work, artist work in bands, but then they're also a member of the AFM because of being session players back in the day, you know, with MJ, with Hall Notes, with whoever. So yeah, it, we recommend that you stay a member of both if you are already with both. Non-featured performers don't have a choice then. I'm guessing you have to, in order to collect any featured performer money, or sorry, non-featured performer money. Sorry, I, I have friends in the LA Phil. I talk to them a lot about this stuff. And one of the things for Sound Exchange, and he said, no, AFM told me they would take care of all of that. I said, well, it depends on whether you are featured or not featured. And he said, well, most of the time you're not featured because this is a question I have on behalf of him because will the AFM actually get him his money or it... Or can he determine like, look, I was a featured performer on this because I was a soloist. I mean, I don't know how the, how the symphonic works break down, right? At, at, at some point, like everybody is for those size symphonies, everybody's a union member. We're all going to answer this to see if we agree. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I, you found my question and I was rambling a bit, but sorry. I'm going to say sign up with Sound Exchange. Directly. For his featured, featured. contributions is what yes. I would say. Um, as I mentioned before, yeah, be a member of both to cover your non-featured work and then your soloist featured work. I agree. When they are members of the orchestra and the orchestra is the named artist, then they are featured. If the orchestra is supporting the named artist, then they are non-featured, unless it is Joe Bloggs and the Philharmonic. Then they're both featured. One is contracted featured, the other is other featured. But as long as they're named on the cover or in the title, like if you look at it at Sound Exchange or as the artist on Spotify, yeah, they are featured. And it doesn't matter that there's a hundred of them. They could all be featured depending on the contract they have with the Philharmonic and what the label copy on the recording says. And that's important because 
at sound exchange girls correct me if i get the numbers wrong is it 45 percent of the performer side stays at sound exchange for the featured and only five percent goes to afm for all of the non-featured to share yes that's the figures i have yeah so it makes a huge difference to get that right Clearly, and that that's enlightening to me because presume that because you're in the symphony, the featured performer would be the soloist if there was one, or the conductor. But let's say the symphony is supporting a soloist. The soloist then would have their name right. with the LA Phil. So in that that's sense, right. you so might argue non-featured, right? But otherwise, if it's just a performance and they're and they're doing a Stravinsky run because it's an anniversary for Stravinsky like they did a couple of years ago but it's just the LA Phil does, does the the conductor uh, Gustavo Dudamel does he take precedent over this or is he not a part of them I was just to say the conductor is eligible to claim but the conductor can claim for his role and then the orchestra would claim their percentage as well okay so 100 people in the orchestra and if you go to sound exchange, they you're, 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 you're splitting a 100 piece orchestra by 45 percent it's a much better uh, equation from the performer side than going through the AFM and getting 5% of the 100 orchestra split. That's right. Because uh, non-featured performers don't have a choice, they have to go in the U.S. Yes. Again, they have to go through the AFM to get their money. Are there any checks and balances on the flow of performer income or the non-featured performer income from sound exchange to AFM for the non-featured performer? How do you make sure you get paid? doesn't get any information from sound exchange they get a lump sum of money and they only pay the top 25 percent of earners the money that comes regardless of who earned it so the other 75 percent get bupkis no matter how much work they've done i've connected quite a few people to sound exchange many even outside of big markets like los angeles for example a, a drummer friend of mine in uh, columbus who's played on a lot of recordings big band glenn miller orchestra all this sort of thing they go through afm because they're scared to go against the union and they have said as much that they don't want to piss off the union i don't know what that means i don't know what the union does but for example is what is is there any reasonable fear there that that it, that somehow it interferes with AFFM's income or could cause some sort of grief I'm not aware of it no to be honest with you are they making their income from AFM royalties not not their primary income no I mean they get performance income right I mean they they go out and they play a show and or they do a recording but that's they get gig fees yeah they but, get gig fees performance okay if AFM isn't already paying them Where's the threat? The union should be working for all of its members. It's, it's its only mission statement is to empower its members. So if they're not working for you, it's a restraint of trade. If they're not paying you and threatening you that you won't be able to work because you're trying to collect your income. Should a U.S. artist, recording artist, record outside of the U.S.? in studios that are signatories to the agreement. Now, this first, I first came upon this when I first joined Flogging Molly and we first started to see royalty checks. And I had, there used to be a a business management company called Provident that used to, uh, was a division of American Express that used to do the business management for Side One Dummy, our label. And he was from Sweden. He said, George, your singer is born in Ireland. You need to start recording outside of the US. So eventually we got to that. That was the first time I heard of neighboring rights. Um, And I was like, wow, okay. This is interesting. So eventually 
we did that and made uh, a record in Ireland, but I don't think we had enough terrestrial airplay or performances from that recording to generate any income. I know some was generated, but apparently wasn't enough to deliver the money. So if the answer is yes, it's better to record outside of the U.S. to potentially open a door of income, right? To potentially turn on that faucet. Does an artist have to be domiciled in that country or in a signatory country to collect? Or could it be, let's say it's a strictly a U.S. band. There's four U.S. members, U.S. band. They go and record in France. Yeah, that qualifies. So you'll hear about qualifying that term a lot. And by the way, that was excellent advice you received back in the day. Um, so yeah, if you are all American citizens, you reside in America, you're a US band, if you go and record in France or Ireland or the UK, yeah, it's qualifying. And then all of the CMOs, which is what we refer to societies as, like we call them CMOs, they'll see it on their system as recorded in Ireland or the UK. And they'll be like, yeah, cool, it qualifies. And then as you say, the faucet's open. I have an artist that I signed earlier this year who was on the uh, equivalent of supposedly the equivalent of Eurovision in the U.S. It's called American Song Contest. NBC bought the rights and they created this thing called American Song Contest hosted by Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg. It was a complete disaster. Um, However, (laughs) I mean, the ratings were dropping by, you know, 20, 30 percent a week. By the time they got but by the time they got to his week where he performed, he's singer-songwriter from Idaho. Authentic, great writer. Andrew got to the fifth week and his viewership was down. They they dropped below a million, which is which is not great considering what they were following because they placed it in a position to win. In spite of all this, does Andrew have a claim? Should that be broadcast in territories outside of the US? If somebody picks up that show and they see his performance or hear his performance he's a featured performer can he collect on anything yeah, there? he could if, uh, has the rights holder of the track registered the recording if it's registered with the collection societies so it has to be registered to make a claim right, right. then he's entitled to go ahead and make his claim because you'll never know what, who's going to play it basically so okay. yes always make the claim but you may find the rights holder has entered his contribution anyway but he would also need to be a member of a society to actually collect the money. Okay, so yeah, it was a one-off singles deal with Atlantic Records. Atlantic would have the have registered that, I would think. But he still need, clearly he still needs to join the PPL or do it individually or somebody who can manage those rights. I have one last question, if we have a moment. This is uh, this brought up something for me listening to a previous podcast uh, from IFR about NFTs. Are NFTs monetizable from a neighboring rights standpoint? And do you see any point in time where you can envision something like that? Yes, not just NFTs, but the metaverse as well. Anytime the recording is played in public, it doesn't matter what the platform is or what the entity is, whether it's a CD or a DAT tape or anything. It's about the performance in public. So was within that within the uh, the blockchain contract, anything could be negotiated because you can you can jet, you can create those contracts to do anything. The Web three music rights group that I talked about us founding right. has been hard at work doing this. We have drafted the agreements, we have set the royalty matrix, and we have a roundtable in LA on the twenty fourth of August uh, for industry feedback. So so yes, it's in there. 
and the licensing system that we have devised should go global after we just fix any of the tweaks and hire the smart contract drafters. Those were brilliant questions. Thank you, George. And thank you guys for listening out there in internet land. Remember, if you're not a member already, go to www.iafar.co.uk. See you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me.